As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And you can also register there for the chance to win a free book. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, then please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. But now for today's show. I am so excited today to be joined by the wonderful Dr. Amy Orr-Ewing, an international author and speaker and theologian. And Amy has written numerous books, including Where is God in All the Suffering? Why Trust the Bible? And most recently, this wonderful, wonderful Advent book, Mary's Voice. Is there any evidence for the virgin birth? I feel like that's a very contested thing, isn't it? It's a a reason why lots of people reject Christianity because they think that's a ridiculous idea. It's very outdated. It's it's a miracle and we don't believe in miracles. But is there any evidence that we can draw upon for this? Yeah. so as with any miracle that's that's recorded, you know, um, we can approach that sort of text with a degree of scepticism and certainly people in our age would approach, you know, a claim of a miracle with a, with a degree of scepticism. What I think is fascinating about the gospel accounts is that that is acknowledged. So the central relationship of Mary's life is with her betrothed her boyfriend whatever you know they're not married yet Joseph and when Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant he decides to it says to sort of put her to one side quietly because he was an honorable man he didn't want to shame her but the clear implication of the of the text is Joseph understands how babies are made he knows he hasn't slept with her so he concludes a natural reason for the pregnancy So we're not dealing with a religious text that assumes a sort of supernatural bubble that we've entered into. And Joseph goes, we're in the Bible now, people. It must be a virgin (laughs) conception. No, he assumes a natural reason for the pregnancy. And only when he himself has an encounter with an angel is he prepared to upend his life and go with this. So within the text, at least deductively, um, there's an acknowledgement of natural law and the natural processes um, and, you know, the power dynamics of the age. And I think that's really interesting and powerful evidence for, for this actually being true. Second piece of evidence that we get again in the text 
is this relationship that Mary has with Elizabeth, her cousin. So Elizabeth is an older person, um, past, so she's gone through the menopause. It says she's past childbearing age and she's married to Zachariah. He's quite a high profile priest, one of the ones who's allowed into the temple. And so it's a known fact that this couple cannot have children. They've never had a child and, you know, barrenness was a huge shame in that culture. They've never had a child. They're very old. It's humanly, physically impossible for them to have a child. And through an angel and the prophetic word, Elizabeth is able to have a baby. And that baby goes on to be John the Baptist. So that's, in a way, a more publicly verifiable miracle because everyone who knows them, and that's a lot of people because he's got a public role in the society, know it is physically impossible for her to conceive and she has conceived. Now, in that context, the word given about John the Baptist is that he's this forerunner. He's meant to go ahead of the Lord. And Mary this teenager who's as yet unmarried goes to congratulate her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth doesn't know anything that's happened with Mary. She doesn't know from the relatives that Mary's pregnant. Mary walks into Elizabeth's house and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. The baby in her leaps. Now, anyone who's been pregnant knows that that would be notable. You know, when I had twins in there, you know, they were sort of elbowing each other. You could see it on the scan. You could really feel all that movement going on. And she notes this, this baby does something more than just make this baby leaps. And Elizabeth is inspired and says to Mary, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So Elizabeth prophesies that Mary is pregnant with her Lord, with God. I mean, it's a, just another layer of public verification that, that, that this miracle happened. Now, obviously, you know, if you're approaching the text of the Bible as a materialist and you've ruled out the possibility of anything miraculous, and you've said, you know, only the natural world exists and only um, material things have any kind of reality, then even that sort of evidence from people's testimony of the time, you're going to reject it, but you're rejecting it on the basis of your um, your pre-commitment, your a, what you call an a priori commitment, your in advance commitment to the impossibility of the supernatural. And what I would want to argue is that that in and of itself is not a rational position. That's a, a position that is almost a faith. That's an ideology that you are then imposing on the text. And I think if you approach the world and the text with at least an openness to the possibility that this natural world was brought into existence by God who actually exists, who's the author of creation, then that God would be able to intervene miraculously in this world. Um, but obviously, if you count out that possibility out of hand, then you're not going to be open to any kind of evidence. So sorry, that was a really long answer. Yeah, but that was really helpful. The evidence helpful. is actually quite interesting for the virgin birth in terms of the reaction of both Joseph and Elizabeth. I guess another um, area that feels really hard for like modern ears to understand is that as you put it in your book the eternal god is born into history mm -hmm. i mean how do we explain the incarnation 
Yes, well, <laughs> people have used lots of analogies, haven't they? I mean, Dorothy L. Sayers, who I absolutely love, who's a very good friend of C.S. Lewis, talks about the incarnation as the greatest story to have ever staggered the imagination of man and talks about it as the greatest story ever told. And, um, and one analogy that she uses that I find quite helpful is um, she, she wrote plays and she wrote books and was an author and everything. And she described the incarnation as the author entering his own story. So one thing that Christians can say at least is that because God uniquely created human beings in his image, male and female, to sort of bear the image of God, there's at least not a contradiction and not an inherent contradiction between God and humanity. So um, one analogy that I heard from a, from a brilliant Indian teacher called LTJ Chandran, he describes it as, you know, if you, if you were to think of a cube in three dimensions, but if that cube were to be seen or to be in a two-dimensional world, the cube would be a square in that world, and that would not be a contradiction. And that's quite a helpful analogy. So for God, who created human beings in his image, to then come in his own image and enter human history, it's still incredible and amazing and extraordinary and it needs to be scrutinized and questioned and verified i definitely agree with that um but it's not a, it's not an inherent contradiction um so it doesn't sort of collapse under the weight of you know being a logical impossibility um so i think there are helpful analogies that we can draw on and then i guess the other thing i would do is to to just say is there any evidence that this is the case? And from the earliest days of the church, you know, the, the Apostle Paul um, envisaged the resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb, three days after Christ's crucifixion and death, that the resurrection of Jesus is a sort of scrutinizable, verifiable event in history that gives us confidence that the incarnation is actually true, that there has been one person who's ever lived, who was God, who's actually conquered death. Um, and so we can see it, you know, it's hard to get our heads around. And that's, again, one of the things in Mary's voice I'm hoping to do is to help us recapture the wonder of this. Like most often people think the Christian faith is banal. It's like you know, too small and it's petty and small-minded and just trying to stop people doing what they want and it's moralistic or pietistic. But actually it's earth-shattering, you know, and and for us as Christians to be kind of enraptured and excited about the possibility that God entered history, you know, and not and not just think, oh yeah, that's really normal. No, it's not normal. It's it's you know, it's a staggering claim, but if it's true and if there's evidence for it, then it actually changes my life and your life. So to recapture that kind of um, wonder again. Amy, again, this is an absolutely massive question. I'm sorry, I'm just <laughs> yeah, throwing all Ruth. the difficult ones at you today. <laughs> How can Jesus be both fully God and fully man? How do we hold the two together? And I guess significantly, why is it important that he is yeah. both? Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, obviously the analogy I gave about the cube and the square and the image of God, I think, applies to this question as well. I think one of the crucial things we need to sort of remember and get our heads around is that the claim is that Christ is fully human, but he's the only one since Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis 3 who's born into this world unharmed and untainted by sin. And that's possible because, you know, of this miracle of the virgin birth incarnation, right? So miraculously, um, Jesus is born without sin, even though he's born of Mary. Mary is sinful, right? So that there's a sort of important theological point there. And when we begin to think about that, it helps us realise why we possibly don't understand this, why it's actually an even bigger question than than we thought, because it's hard for us to conceive of what it means to be human before the fall, because we have no conception of that and no knowledge of that. So it's possible for God to be born into this world as a human being because of the whole image of God thing that I've talked about. But it's also possible because we're talking about the kind of humanity and that experience of humanity that existed before Adam and Eve, before the sorrow and sickness and death and devastation and power abuse and, you know, the decay of creation and climate change and all everything, everything, everything before all of that. And so Jesus being born into this world as fully God and fully human is also a beautiful picture and image of that kind of life. Then, of course, the invitation of the Christian faith is that through him we can be redeemed. And, you know, there's this amazing hope in our decaying world, in our broken world. Um, Yes, I think that's what I'd say. (laughs) You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Amy, you've spoken quite a lot about the fact that Mary was there at obviously the birth of Jesus. She was there at the crucifixion. She was there at the resurrection. And, you know, the the testimony of women is so important in the Gospels, particularly in Luke's narrative. How can we trust that Mary's testimony is accurate? Yeah. So that's, that's, I think, a really interesting question. I mean, I think one of the reasons we can trust it is that Luke begins his gospel by saying you know therefore since I myself have been carefully investigating investigated um, all these things from the beginning so Luke position Luke is a gentile he's a doctor he is not a first-hand eyewitness himself and so he presents his gospel as having rigorously scrutinized the eyewitnesses that were still alive and um and obviously centers Mary, finds Mary credible. So um, we have some evidence, at least from from Luke, who was trained scientifically um, that in the ancient world, obviously, um, that Mary was was a sort of very a reliable source. I think the second thing to bear in mind is the culture of oral tradition of the time. So it's quite hard for us to imagine you know, the feats of memory that people in the ancient world were capable of because, you know, we think, my, well, my brain's like a sieve. I can barely remember what, what happened yesterday. Certainly not, you know, a very kind of detailed account of a conversation. But 
Um, I mean, studies show that if you use the right techniques, you can, as human beings can memorize things and, and then verbally, you know, keep repeating and passing them on. So I think the culture of an oral tradition and the capacity to do that is, is really key. And then I think thirdly, um, with Mary in particular, we have this phrase that comes up a couple of times. She treasured things in her heart. She pondered things in her heart. So you have this woman who gives birth and, you know, there's a lot of activity that's recorded. And then she's got the time between, you know, Jesus going to the temple, which is the sort of chronologically the last thing we know of his childhood, and then through to his public ministry. So there's actually quite a long time in an adult woman's life. And the text is implying she pondered she treasured. So it's not by accident. It's not like she's sort of, you know, scrapped around hoping to remember things. No, she put into action a discipline of, of, of memory and memorization. And, um, so, so I think that's really significant. And then, um, the last thing I would touch on is that, um, Again, just to mention Richard Borkham and his his amazing writing on Jesus and the eyewitnesses looks at um, the sort of statistical evidence from from texts and from use of words at the time and applies this discipline to the Gospels and concludes on the basis of extraordinary evidence that even the direct speeches that are recorded in the Gospels are correct, you know, are what was are what was written. We have good reason to believe that. So perhaps listeners who are interested in that might might want to go and look at that look at that source in further detail. But I think on the basis of all those things we have we have good reason to to be confident that what is recorded is what is what was said and what occurred. And why is it so significant that Jesus was born of a virgin? I mean why did God pick that way? to reveal himself? So I think um, at least part of the answer is that it's the a fulfillment of the prophecy to Eve that her seed will crush the serpent's head and that, you know, sin comes into the world through a woman and that uniquely redemption is going to come into the world through a biological woman, not through a biological man. So I think there's a theological significance to it. Um, I mean, secondly, it's, it's kind of, I guess, just underscoring that this is, um, that, that the incarnation is not an ordinary person, not an ordinary birth, that this person is unlike any other person since Adam. Um, and I guess if we're being invited to trust our eternal destiny into, the hands of this person and if we're being asked to to trust that this person has the possibility and the capacity to forgive sins they need to be able to identify with us like Jesus can represent us at the cross and carry us in they also need to be bigger than us they need to have the capacity the broad enough shoulders to carry away the sins of the world you know and so um I think the virgin birth speaks to that. I don't think it's anything to do with, you know, sin is somehow um, passed down through sex or something. You know, there was this whole horrible teaching that came in in medieval times that was was 
was taken as an implication um, from the virgin birth. I don't, I don't see that at all in the text. It's there's there's no dishonouring of sex between human beings, but it's it's broadening our minds to the capacity of what this person, fully human and fully God, was going to be able to do. We've talked quite a lot about the Magnificat and some of the really profound things in there. I mean, why does Mary mention mercy? And why do you think that's so important in today's mm. culture, that this idea yeah. of mercy? Yeah. Um, well, Mary lived in a, um, a very harsh culture where she would have seen murder crucifixion slavery all around her constantly like the brutality of of the empire for those living under that oppression i think as well there's very much a sense in the magnificat of mary understanding and empathizing with the human condition and our personal need for mercy and she would have grown up around the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and this idea that, you know, you need an animal to be sacrificed to sort of carry away your sin in order to, to receive mercy. And so she's saying that in Jesus, mercy has come in a person and all that that implies for what it means to be human, what it means to be loved by God, what it means to have the possibility of hope in life. Um, I think is 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 entailed in that. Also, you know, because I'm a Christian, right? I mean, if you're reading this as someone who's a bit more sceptical, you could maybe ignore this point. But as a Christian, I believe that the Holy Spirit inspires the scriptures and the Magnificat is a key part of the scriptures. The Holy Spirit is actually inspiring Mary's words. There's an element of prophecy happening here. So by the Holy Spirit, our attention is being drawn to this concept of mercy and the mercy seat of God and the role Jesus is going to play in bringing the possibility of mercy into, into our world. Well, I guess very connected to that is this idea of justice that Mary yeah. talks about a lot in, yeah. the, in the Magnificat. And I mean, how is that relevant to the Christmas story? Yeah, I mentioned on the first podcast on the first episode that um I first really engaged with the Magnificat in the context of supporting someone in a criminal trial they were giving evidence about horrific um childhood abuse that had been done by a very powerful person and um one of the things that I found so helpful and confronting about the Magnificat is that there's this hope of mercy but there's also not an underplaying of the need for justice in this world and the evildoers and that the powerful on their thrones will actually be brought down. And that if you've been a victim, if you've been someone who's suffered under oppression or violence or sexual assault, then there's hope in the idea that a perpetrator would be brought to justice, you know, um so for both sides of this of this equation when when we know we need mercy where we've messed up you know Jesus is the source of mercy but also Jesus upholds the dignity of the person and the seriousness of wrong, moral wrongdoing and injustice and will bring 
about the downfall of the mighty who've oppressed others. And so in our moment, I think in cancel culture and in our moment culturally in history where we kind of, there's this sort of feeling in the society that to forgive would be moral weakness because it would require me to sort of underplay or undervalue the the impact of the harm like i would have to say it doesn't matter or it doesn't hurt it wasn't it wasn't wrong anymore so i forgive you and actually you know mary's vision in the magnificat and what jesus came to do doesn't do that there is a possibility and hope of forgiveness and redemption and the seriousness of transgression and wrongdoing are, are upheld um and it's uniquely in jesus that that these two can coexist. And I think in our cultural moment, we desperately need both. We need a, a vision of justice that is willing to defiantly stand against evil and bring darkness into the light and see harm stopped and all of that and abuse called, um, you know, abuse punished. All of that needs to happen, but we also need desperately mercy and redemption and forgiveness and, you know, the possibility of hope. And um, Mary says in Jesus, these two come together. I think, yeah, you sort of sum this up beautifully in the book where you say Mary is not a disinterested bystander. She acknowledges that the longing and the hope of her people, of her ancestors, involves her. A humble, unknown woman gets to be part of God's promises in human history. Mm -hmm. Don't give up hope. Our God is a God who remembers, who knows, who helps. And then you go on to say, in this Advent season, as we prepare our minds and our hearts to worship Christ, marvelling that he came into this world and was born for our salvation, surrender to him again your hopes and your cares. Amy, as, as we finish this, again, this feels like a massive question. And in some ways, you've definitely answered this throughout the three episodes. But what can we learn from Mary this Advent? So I think we can learn from Mary that however poor, oppressed, overlooked, harassed we feel, um, there's a place for us in God's story and our voices matter. I think we can learn that Mary was not just a sort of static figure and that her voice matters and the content of what she says and what she believed about Jesus is is really central to the Christian faith. And so as we go into Advent, to reflect on that, to listen, to grow as, you know, as disciples and followers of Jesus, we can be refreshed and renewed and restored and really grasp the wonder of the incarnation as she did um, and be prepared for that Christmas day to, to celebrate in, in a totally different way than um than if we don't go on a journey in Advent. Um, so yeah, I'd really encourage you, and thank you, Ruth, really encourage you to consider listening to Mary's voice, you know, reading those scriptures again and perhaps picking up the book, following that devotional through um, the first few days of, of, of December, 1st to 25th. Well, Amy, I will make sure that there is a link in the show notes of how to get hold of a copy of this book. But thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks, Ruth. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And as always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. We would love to hear your feedback. Do drop us an email with your thoughts at unbelievable at premier.org.uk. 
or get in touch via social media. And don't forget, there are more shows, articles and resources at our website, premierunbelievable.com. You can also register there for the chance to win a free book. That's premierunbelievable.com. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, please do consider rating and reviewing it. Thank you for listening and see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.